0: In 1918, Charlie Chaplin was one of the biggest stars of the silent movie era, beloved by his adoring public. But his private life in 1918 was a mess. To avoid a scandal, he had married a 16-year-old who claimed to be pregnant with his child. She wasn't. Chaplin was miserable in the marriage and suffered the first creative block of his career. Then his wife became genuinely pregnant. But the baby died three days after birth. Chaplin was heartbroken. Out of his grief, however, came what many fans consider to be his best film, and surely his most personal. Just ten days after he buried his infant son, he began auditioning babies for what would become The Kid. The feature-length film told the story of a child who was abandoned at birth, then taken in and raised for five or six years by Chaplin's character. The Tramp. When it debuted in 1921, The Kid was a box office smash. To this day, it's one of the rare films that has a 100% perfect rating from Rotten Tomatoes. But there's something else that makes The Kid rare. Chaplin altered the movie and reissued it several times over the years, and he composed a new musical score. So almost nobody alive today has seen the original cut from 1921 with the original music. But you know who has seen and heard it? Patrons of Phillipsburg's Roland Theater. Right here, Dead Center. Hi, I'm Katie O'Toole from the Center County Historical Society. The Roland Theater is a special setting for a lot of reasons. In April, the original score to The Kid was performed here by the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra. Conductor Rick Benjamin is the orchestra's founder and director. He's also the owner of the largest collection in the world of original scores to silent movies. Some 900 titles, all composed between approximately 1830 and 1930. The orchestra has performed in concert halls around the world. So why would a Juilliard-trained conductor bring his prestigious show to the Roland theater? Benjamin was still jubilant from his orchestra's performance in April when I asked him that. It's very exciting to be in a historic place like this because there are just so many sort of vibes and ghosts that are, uh, you know, sort of assisting you in bringing back all of the, all of the culture, so you can, you can feel the vibrations of the space, too. Bringing back the culture. Benjamin probably didn't know it when he used that phrase but that was exactly what the theater's founder had in mind when he established the Roland 101 years ago. Now, I can't confirm that any ghosts were assisting in Benjamin's performance, but the generous spirit of Charles heading Rowland was evident. Um, I knew that he moved, he was born in 1860 in Maryland,
1: moved to Huntington in 1866, and then he moved to Houdstow in 1874.
0: That's Rebecca Inlow. She's a member of the Board of Directors of the Roland. And she's becoming an expert on the Roland thanks to the book that she's written about the theater. Her research has taken her into old newspapers, census records, courthouse deeds, and interviews with descendants of Charles Roland. Here's what she's found. Like a character in the rags-to-riches Horatio Alger novels that he probably read, Charles Roland rose from a humble background to become his town's greatest benefactor. In
1: the 1880 census, he was, he, he was a clerk in a store.
0: Roland must have been one heck of a clerk, because by the end of the decade, he had come to the attention of Samuel Langdon. He was a wealthy Philadelphia industrialist who owned coal mines in central Pennsylvania. Heldstel
1: and Osceola were sitting on top of the Machan and Coal vein. It was a celebrated coal vein everybody wanted a part of. Um, it was black gold. And so Charles began operating the mines of Samuel Langdon,
0: Mining coal was one thing. Getting it to market was another. In the late 1800s, the Pennsylvania Railroad dominated the tracks in places like Phillipsburg. Langdon took exception to the railroad's control. He resented the concessions he had to make and the freight charges he was forced to pay. So he started his own railroad. It was known locally as the Alley Popper. Charles Rowland was one of the primary bondholders— the success of the railroad meant success for Roland, who eventually became its president. By
1: 1900, he was a rich man. And he left Houdstow, moved to Tyrone. Uh, he only lived in Tyrone for three years, but he lived on Lincoln Avenue which was where all the movers and shakers of Tyrone lived. He moved to Tyrone, but he had his eyes on a property here in Phillipsburg. It was the Robert Lloyd house. Robert Lloyd had died, but it was owned by the heirs, and Charles Roland wanted
0: that house. It was a sprawling Victorian mansion on South Center Street. It had a wraparound veranda, curved window panes, stone fireplace mantles, and an oversized parlor. It was built for comfort and luxury, and for entertaining. Roland bought it And in 1903, he brought his wife and five children to live in the prosperous little town, made wealthy by coal, timber, manufacturing, and railroads.
1: In the 1900 census, the 1910 census, the population of Phillipsburg was around maybe 3,500. So more people than the current census, but not a huge town. There was they said there were 90 businesses downtown at that time, so Philipsburg had a bustling downtown at the early part of the 20th century.
0: Adding to the town's allure were cultural institutions such as the Pierce Opera House on Front Street. Now, if you can't quite picture an opera house in 19th century Center County, let me digress for a moment. Because small-town opera houses have a long and colorful history in early America— beginning with the first one built in colonial Williamsburg in about 1722. During some of the early religious revival movements, however, opera houses were scorned as dens of iniquity. As the colonies moved toward independence, the Continental Congress in 1774 banned the performance of opera. And for good measure... Another anti-opera ban was passed in 1778. But the shows went on, sometimes falsely advertised as public lectures or morality plays, to escape the censors. In 1789, the newly independent government lifted the ban after considerable lobbying from both performers and opera lovers. Religious opposition to opera gradually dwindled. And the real boom in small town opera houses started in the years following the Civil War. When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah! An opera house brought a cosmopolitan touch that could help to attract newcomers to rural communities like Phillipsburg. Sometimes opera houses were built as a way of convincing railroads to put a station in a town. And of course, the railroad could then bring touring companies and patrons to town from distant locations. And we'll all feel gay when Johnny comes home. According to opera historian John Dezeki's, many small-town politicians felt that an opera house was an essential institution, as necessary as a post office, church, tavern, or jail. Because of its seating capacity, the opera house also doubled in small towns as a meeting place. In fact, even when Roland was still living in Houtsdale, he attended meetings at the Pierce Opera House. So back to Roland. In the same year that he settled in Phillipsburg, 1903, a trolley began operating through the town. Its maiden run took place on Christmas Eve.
1: The trolley tracks ran through town. It was called the Center and Clearfield Street Railway. It had its first run on Christmas Eve, 1903, and Charles Rowland was the conductor, like the honorary conductor on that first trip through town. It went through town and it went past Front Street, past the Pierce Opera House. And I, I just think it's kind of, I, you know, you just would wonder that he, he wouldn't have realized it then, but you know, within 14 years, that would be his theater at the site of the Pierce Opera House.
0: By the early 20th century, opera houses were getting competition from a newer form of public entertainment, the cinema. Motion pictures had evolved from coin-operated peep shows in the back rooms of businesses to storefront Nickelodeons, where a selection of short films played continuously. But it wasn't economic competition that did in the Pierce Opera House.
1: Um, so in 1910, December 30th, 1910, at about 5 a.m., a fire broke out in downtown Phillipsburg. Um, it was a windy day. And that hampered the efforts. Um, they, at the time, they called it the biggest loss of downtown Phillipsburg. That fire burned the Pierce Opera House, which was located exactly where the Roland Theater is now. And the remains of the Pierce Opera House stayed at that site for five years.
0: In a photograph taken of a parade in 1913, the remains of the Pierce Opera House can be seen. Patriotic bunting is draped across the charred timbers. It was surely an eyesore in the otherwise charming downtown. By now, an actual cinema was operating in Phillipsburg. It was called the Majestic Theater, but the name was deceiving. It was a modest movie house, a place where working-class families could watch low-budget westerns or serialized shows. The manager of the Majestic was Albert Fleckenstein. He was convinced that Phillipsburg needed a theater that was... Well, a little more majestic. So he approached Charles Rowland.
1: And then Albert Fluckenstein says, hey, why don't you build us a theater, a high-class movie theater? And he did.
0: Why Charles Rowland? Well, for starters, he had the money. He was president by now of both the Michanan Coal Company and the railroad. And he was the director of the Michanan National Bank. Oh, and did I mention that he was a congressman? In 1914, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, where he served two terms. But he also was civic minded, devoted to Phillipsburg's progress, and generous to a fault.
1: He was one of the men who started the trolley, the steam heat plant. Um, his name is on the charter to practically every organization of that time. There was the Phillipsburg Elks, the Phillipsburg City Band. Um, If anybody asked him, he would do it. He was um, just a very big benefactor.
0: Ultimately, Roland accepted Fleckenstein's proposal because he believed that the people who worked in his mines and on his railroad by day were entitled to good entertainment in the evenings and on weekends. Also, he knew for a fact that they loved a bit of theatrical drama. In 1914, the Lubin Film Company of Philadelphia had contacted the local railroad, remember the alley popper, for permission to stage a train wreck for a camera crew. Since there were two engines that needed to be replaced anyway, Roland and the railroad's board of directors agreed. It took place in the village of Hudson, on a part of the track just west of Phillipsburg. The railroad wanted to accommodate curious spectators and make a bit of money. So, plank bleachers were set up near the site. They were surrounded by a canvas wall to keep out the non paying spectators. After days of trial runs to establish the proper speed and collision point, the Alley Popper's number three and number four locomotives were positioned a mile apart, pulling passenger and coal cars respectively. As tension mounted in the stands, the engineer in each of the doomed trains started toward the impact site. As they approached one another, they pulled open their throttles. The men then jumped to the ground, while the trains thundered toward each other. With a tremendous roar, the trains crashed, sending up a cloud of smoke and debris. Several of the train cars splintered and scattered like so much kindling. Awed by the destruction, the crowd returned the next day. A train car that had survived the crash was filled with mannequins and set on fire so that the Lubin Film Company could shoot some dramatic rescue scenes. The wreck was first seen in the 1915 silent movie The Valley of Lost Hope, but it showed up in other movies as well. Now, I don't know whether the town's personal encounter with the film industry factored into Roland's subsequent decision to buy the Pierce property. But the community must have been enthralled to witness another creative drama involving a charred ruin. But this time, like the proverbial phoenix, a grand, ornate theater rose from the ashes to take the place of the old opera house.
1: Um, One of the first things he did was hire architect Julian Millard, who lived in Hollidaysburg, and Warren A. Hoyt was, they called him the constructing engineer from Altoona, and he wanted the best, and he got the best in those two. Um, Julian Millard was responsible for a lot of the architecture of central Pennsylvania back in that time period, the Hollidaysburg Courthouse, um, a lot of the churches over in the um, Blair County area. And Warren A. Hoyt started the architecture program at the University of Pennsylvania. And in 1923, he was named Pennsylvania's first state architect. And then Warren A. Hoyt, W.A. Hoyt, they called him. He was known throughout the country for his work with the use of concrete in cold weather. And he um, designed like the Cowell Company's buildings in Battle Creek, Michigan. And so he hired them right away. Construction began in 1916 and then continued through um, the theater's opening.
0: By the standards of both then and now, the Roland Theater was grand. Its dazzling glass and copper marquee projected over the front street sidewalk and beckoned patrons into a luxurious lobby. Marble, murals, and architectural flourishes were everywhere, Wide staircases led up to the balcony, which, along with the main floor, accommodated more than 1,000 people. The orchestra pit provided seating for 30 musicians, and the 11 dressing rooms in the basement ensured that the Roland could handle large, star-studded casts of performers. And unlike the Pierce Opera House, the Roland Theater was said to be fireproof.
1: Okay, so there were concrete trusses everywhere, and the one thing that theaters at that time started doing is the asbestos curtain. Um, there's an asbestos drop curtain that has a beautiful vista scene painted on it. And it's in front of our screen, and so it's, um, it's behind our curtain, and it drops down, and it's asbestos, so that's the, that's the firewall. So if there is a fire, it's going to stop there
0: on either side. Of course, there were those who called the opulent theater... Roland's Folly. Here's Rebecca Inlow reading a column from a 1917 edition of the Altoona Tribune.
1: Phillipsburg has but 4,500 population, and even with patronage from surrounding towns, it will be seen readily that with so great an investment, the theater cannot be a paying proposition, but the Congressman believes the people of that section should have the opportunity of seeing the best on the stage under the most delightful surroundings even though not a commercial success. And today, Phillipsburg boasts of one of the finest theaters in the state of Pennsylvania.
0: In a brochure distributed on the theater's opening night, Roland reinforced that sentiment. He wrote, I have felt that we should have a theater building in Phillipsburg of size, safety, and perfection of appointment that would anticipate the future, maintain our best past traditions, reflect a progressive spirit, while affording us a place to spend a delightful evening at home. It is proposed to stage only plays and moving pictures of class and quality. I trust the people of Phillipsburg, together with those who come from surrounding towns, may enjoy the Playhouse, now dedicated to their use and pleasure. Charles Rowling would surely be gratified to know how much pleasure his theatre has brought to Phillipsburg and surrounding communities. The train tracks just behind the backstage door gave easy access to vaudeville troupes and stage actors who gave live performances, and to the orchestras who played the scores and sound effects for silent movies. Roland didn't live to see the parade of celebrities who graced his stage, people such as native Pennsylvanian Tom Mix, who was Hollywood's first cowboy star of Western movies. On Thanksgiving Day in 1921, just four years after the theater's opening, Roland died.
1: They said the, the illness came on suddenly. His death certificate, I think, says, I think it was cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, it was unexpected, though. Um, he was one month shy of his six, 61st birthday. So he was 60, but he would have turned 61 one month later.
0: The marquee of the Roland Theater went dark that night and throughout the following weekend, out of respect for the man who had revived theater in Phillipsburg, because he believed it to be a public necessity. As Rebecca Inlow likes to say, the years were not always kind to the Roland theater. Like the town itself, the theater's fortunes rose and fell over the century. Sometimes the roof leaked, the murals were painted over, electrical and plumbing repairs were needed. But each time the theater was threatened by bankruptcy or closure— someone came to its rescue. Today, it's owned by the Phillipsburg Borough, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. Thanks to volunteer manager Kevin Conklin and others, it's experiencing a revival, one so robust that it's drawing the likes of the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra and classic movies like Chaplin's The Kid. (laughs) On that evening in April, Charlie Chaplin's movie seemed especially appropriate. The role of the unnamed kid in the movie was played by Jackie Coogan. He was a beautiful little boy who became one of the first child stars in film history. Yet the role that he was best known for near the end of his career was Uncle Fester, the hunched, balding, deranged but lovable member of the Adams Family television series. Those of us of a certain age will recall that Uncle Fester had a weird capacity for generating electricity. He would demonstrate it by putting a light bulb in his mouth, and amid much electrical static and crackling, it would glow brilliantly. Maybe I'm reaching here, but I think it's an apt metaphor for the role in theater. No longer quite as bright and beautiful as in its youth, but still enchanting and entertaining the community. Right here, Dead center. Today's podcast drew heavily from Rebecca Inlow's research, so if you're interested in learning more, be sure to get her book, The Role in Story. Much of the music comes from the live performance of the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra, and our theme music is Coffee Shop by David Zestze.